Here we go. Test one, two, three. Hello, and welcome to the Becker's Spine Orthopedic and Pain Management Driven ASC Plus the Future of Spine virtual event. I am Laura Deirda, Editor-in-Chief of Becker's ASC Review and Becker's Spine Review. I am pleased to be joined today by Dr. Evelina Berger, the Chair of Orthopedics at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Dr. Berger is a fantastic leader in the spine field and we are thrilled to have her speaking with us today. Before I jump into the questions, Dr. Berger, could you please tell us a little bit about your background? So I'm South African born and trained. Um, I was recruited to LSU almost 20 years ago and then joined uh, the Colorado School of Medicine in 2006. I've been in this department for close to 15 years now and I became the chair of the orthopedic department in November of 2018. I practice in adult spine realm and I do mostly adult spine deformity. That's fantastic and we're so pleased to have you here. All right, I'll jump into the questions now for our fireside chat. What are the biggest challenges in your practice today? First as a spine surgeon and then we'd love to hear about um, some of the challenges that you've been um, facing, I guess, as a leader of a um, department at the Academic Medical Center? I think the biggest challenge for me as a spine surgeon, um, having done this for almost 35 years, is to provide value-based care. We are becoming more aware of this and how important it is that we have cost containment that we do the right thing for the right patient at the right time. Um, data is plentiful. And I think finally we in the medical field are able to use data now to predict outcomes. Um, and that is a significant change. Because when you first start out as a spine surgeon, um, you wanna fix everything. And it's a hard, lesson to learn when your surgery can actually harm the patient because we always want to do the right thing and we always thought we are doing the best we can by doing surgery for this patient and as you look at data and then incorporate your own data in these algorithms you learn that sometimes you should not operate uh, so that's a significant paradigm change and it is a challenge to live within that realm, and it's also a challenge to teach that. So as the head of a department, we have to teach our young surgeons to have a sustainable way of practicing orthopedics. If we don't, and we just continue in the old ways where we taught them about pathologies and how you fix it, um, we will be part of the bigger problem of cost containment in this country. And therefore it's important to teach residents from the beginning and medical students about value-based outcomes and when it's important to do surgery and when not, and what is the most cost-effective surgery to have the best outcome. With that comes the challenges of how do you talk to your patients so that they understand when you deny them a surgery for multiple reasons, comorbidities, um, and because you know that they have an 80% chance of having a bad outcome, that you're not denying them care. And that's a difficult paradigm because patients come to you 
and they want to just have the best treatment and the best surgeon. And sometimes the best surgery is not the best treatment for them. So it's a, it's a challenging era that we live in. It's also great to know that we've made these advances. Um, but that's some of the challenges I see going forward um, that you really have to wrap your head around. Absolutely. That's fascinating to try to think about how data can make a, such a big difference in, in what some of the outside influences um, are, are happening in order to change the way that um, orthopedic and spine surgeons are delivering care. I'm wondering, you know, when you think about the pandemic in particular, how do you think it is changing the spine field and healthcare overall? Um, just with everything that's going on since COVID-19 came to the U.S., um, how do you think that spine and healthcare will be different and changed as a result? So I view this pandemic in the same light as a war. Every time that there's been a war, um, it has, unfortunately, the war, it took a war to propel medical knowledge. So this pandemic was another war for us because I don't think that we would have embraced telehealth even as a surgical discipline as much as we did um, and were forced to during the pandemic. It has changed the way we practice, the way we talk to patients, and it's also changed the expectations from patients where they now accept a telehealth visit with a surgeon as a good visit. So I think it has really propelled us into the new era of how to use modern technology to deliver healthcare and I'm excited about it because we will be able to reach more patients this way in remote locations. We live in Colorado. We have a, a big rural community. Um, people always think of Colorado as just mountains and ski, but we are actually a big agricultural um, community. We have lots of ranching. And sometimes when the snow falls, a lot of our patients are cut off from um, their societies. And this would be a phenomenal way where we can actually reach them. Um, some of my patients travel up to 300 miles. If I can telehealth them and save them the travel, which is safer and more effective, I think uh, that's a fantastic way forward. Absolutely. That's a great point. And I'm wondering, you know, especially for, as you mentioned, some of the people who live um, further away, definitely a more convenient and cost-effective option. I'm wondering, do you see even people um, that live within your community wanting to keep telehealth after the pandemic lifts and, you know, it's, it's safer to be more in public places? Or do you think that um, they'll kind of revert back and really prefer the face-to-face -face, um, in the same room type of care? Um, we have the experience already where we are almost 100% ramped up in our clinics and that we still have patients that now prefer the telehealth. Um, they have difficulty in getting a ride. It's a Medicare population. They don't have to take a bus. It's very interesting. And they've become comfortable with the delivery of the message and the understanding that you can talk to them face to face. Um, and we are getting more facile and using the draw box and the chat box and sharing screens and showing x-rays. Um, and it's interesting that this population of patients are also learning how to use technology very, very fast. 
Um, I have an 87-year-old mother who was doing telehealth the other day. Um, I had to set it up for her, but she loved it. And now she wants to know why does she ever have to come back to the hospital again? So it's, it's fascinating that we can do this. And I think that it's here to stay. That's a great point. Um, next thing I was wondering about, if you're looking at the spine field overall, where, what do you think it will look like one year from now? I don't think the changes that is coming will be as rapid that we will have a, a tangible change in one year. But I think five years from now, when this data analysis and big picture data, and especially with the establishment of the registry through the AOS, when that data becomes available, uh, it will make a significant impact on what type of surgeries gets approved by insurance and when they will get approved. Uh, so we are collecting this data um, and we, our site and our university is part of the data collection through the OS. I think it's phenomenal because uh, no single surgeon or group practice can collect this amount of outcome data as when we combine it. And the pathologies that we're looking at are the most common pathologies like disc herniations, spinal stenosis, um, which affects our aging population significant. And I think getting this data out in five years, we will have a very clear picture of when to do surgery, what the outcomes are, and how we can improve the patients and prevent complications. That's, that's interesting. I love that insight kind of in the near term as well as the more distant future. And I know during the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about um, the type of care that's essential or essential surgeries. I'm wondering from your perspective, kind of coupled with the data initiatives and registries and refining um, the type of care delivered, do you see there being a shift in, you know, fewer orthopedic and spine surgeries or just, uh, you know, more, um, treatment options, how do you really think that um, the potential volume and, and way that spine and orthopedic surgeons um, approach doing surgery for patients might change as a result? So it's interesting, during the pandemic, when uh, we were ordered by the governor to stop all elective surgeries, um, we still had a 37.5% volume. And looking back at the surgeries that we did during the close down, um, these were all surgeries for worsening neurology. And I think in a busy practice, uh, you don't notice it as much because you see a patient and you decide that this is urgent and you work the patient in, put it at the end of a list, get it done in a timely manner next week, 10 days. Because we were locked down, um, the surgeries we did were all urgent and emergent. And patients would phone in and or come to the ED and say, I can't feel my legs anymore. I can't feel my bladder. And it was interesting to see patients that were seen before that were on a waiting list actually do get a significant deterioration. We saw this with acute disc herniations. We saw a couple of corda aquinas. Um, and we saw it specifically with cervical myelopathy where patients got significantly worse. Uh, and that was interesting. It sort of made us more vigilant in future when we see patients in clinic to really get that baseline exam and explain to them 
what are the, the symptoms that should drive them back to the clinic or give us a phone call so we can get them in quicker than putting them on a waiting list. Thank you so much for walking me through that. That's really interesting to hear. Um, my next question is looking at technology. What type of technology do you think will be essential in spine going forward, especially as you're looking at value-based and um, cost-effective ways to treat patients? There are two technologies. The first one is data collections with outcomes. There are multiple platforms available for quality outcomes um, collection. And I think it would be essential to have this. And if you cannot participate in this, I think it would be very detrimental. It, it's absolutely a must. Um, a lot of places work, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of places were collecting outcomes over the last 10 years, but we know that the compliance at best were in the low 30th percentile for patients filling out all these forms. But as modern technology and apps have developed, it has become much more easier for patients to fill this out. And patients have become more app-based because they all have cell phones. So technology also helped us to collect better outcomes. So I think that would be phenomenal to see how this massive data collection uh, and technology on outcomes will um, be essential in the future. In the surgical realm, I do think that um, navigation, robotics, um, making sure that surgery is more accurately done and that there are um, less and less never events in the OR is going to play an important role. That's good to hear and great to know. Um, my last question here is, what do you think is the best opportunity for your practice growth when you're looking at just your personal spine practice? And um, how do you expect to grow professionally in the future? I know you've had a very, um, you know, a ton of experience and a great career already. So I just love to hear from your perspective what the next step is for you. Um, I don't want my practice to grow. <laughs> the best opportunity for practice growth, as I see it, is, um, again, delivering consistent quality care. If a, if a young surgeon comes to me and has joined our practice, we are 10 orthopedic spine surgeons and three or four orthopedic um, neurospine surgeons. We all work together. We have a group-based practice. We have physical medicine acute pain, um, psychology, the practice growth is going to be when you have a holistic approach to patients. We have group meetings once a week where we discuss patients. We have social work involved. We have nurse navigators, MSK radiology, pathology, everybody. And to give that patient that reassurance that this is not my opinion, but this is the best treatment option for you as agreed by a number of experts looking at the patients holistically, looking at the social circumstances. If you can give the patient that assurance that you're looking at them as a person and not as a case, uh, your practice will grow. doesn't matter what you do in spine. Professionally, how I would like to grow is I hope that I'm around long enough that I can deliver this important message to our new young surgeons that they need to grow 
um, and that they need to be holistic surgeons and that they need to be holistic healers. This was very important during the pandemic. A medical students would ask me, so what do you do? You're an orthopedic surgeon. And I said, but I'm first of all a doctor. So you have to remember this pandemic made us very humble to realize that first of all, we are doctors and we have to take care of our patients um, holistically. And whether it's their lungs, their heart, the virus, a broken ankle, you have to take care of patients and, and see them as, uh, in the, uh, as persons and not just as cases. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Berger, for joining me for this discussion today. I've really had a fantastic time speaking with you. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you for including me and thank you for getting the message out there. We appreciate it. Absolutely. I know we look forward to uh, continuing the discussion in the future as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.